0: Our home goods and clothing items are made in China, it is a good idea to step back and understand how those goods actually get to us. In 2012, an Oregon mother came face to face with the reality of cheap American consumerism when an SOS letter from China fell out of a box of $5 Halloween decorations. The writer was an engineer imprisoned in a Chinese labor camp where he was forced to work for more than 15 hours a day as part of his re-education by the Chinese government. Two weeks ago, the US announced sanctions against these uh, certain Chinese officials for serious human rights abuses, but is, is this enough? Good evening and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Kirsten Cullenberg, Programs Manager at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program this evening features award-winning investigative journalist, Amelia Pang, on her new book, Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the hidden cost of America's cheap goods. She is joined in conversation by council president and CEO, Liz Railsford. You can purchase a copy of Made in China at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from Interabang Books' online store by using the code DFWWORLD at checkout. And remember, that discount code is good for any of the books in your online shopping cart, not just Made in China. The council has a full schedule of upcoming virtual programs. So remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. The council is incredibly grateful for all of its supporters. And tonight I'd like to especially thank Macy Hyken for her program sponsorship. Macy serves on the council's board of directors and we thank her for her continued support of our mission and of the Focus on China series. I'd like to remind everyone that you, too, can sponsor a program at the Council for as little as $500 or $1,000, and to get in touch with Alana Bunrosto at 956-466-1149 about sponsorship opportunities. And now I have the pleasure of introducing tonight's speaker, Amelia Pang. Amelia is an award-winning investigative journalist, as I mentioned previously. She is currently editor at EdTech Magazine. Her work has been featured in The New Republic, the New York Times Sunday Review and other publications. As I mentioned before, Amelia joins us today to discuss her book, Made in China. This excellent read sheds new light on China's corrupt system of forced labor and its connection to an almost insatiable global demand for cheap goods. Now the planned moderator for tonight's program, Amanda Schnetzer sends her regards but is unfortunately unable to make it tonight. Liz Brailsford, council president and CEO will be filling in for her. Prior to joining our council just a couple of months ago, Liz was the Chief Operating Officer of the World Affairs Council of America, Councils of America, excuse me, known as WACA in Washington DC, which serves more than 90 affiliated councils across the United States. We are absolutely thrilled to have her here in Dallas and moderating her first program. Liz, the floor is yours.
1: Well, thank you, Kirsten. And first, let me say, uh, i just like to welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to my team for their agility and flexibility with this. Uh, we found out just about uh, an hour ago that we uh, could not have our wonderful moderator, Amanda. So uh, please bear with us through this. I will be honest that I have not had a chance to read this book yet, although I am very very excited to do so. So you are stuck with me tonight, (laughs) and uh, we're uh, excited for this. Amelia, I was thrilled to see this uh, book come to us, and you agreed to be with us, because this is a topic that touches everyone here in the U.S., whether they're willing to acknowledge it, uh, whether they ignore it, whether they do something about it, we're gonna dig into this. There's a lot to talk about with this topic. So let's get right to it. And uh, what I'd like to do is really uh, start with you. Why did you uh, write this book and why this topic? Why now? Uh, Just tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Thank you so much for the introduction. Such an honor to be here. Um, Although the book centers on an SOS letter that was discovered in 2012, this was really not, um, this is a very old issue, the first SOS letter of this kind was actually discovered um, in the US in the 90s, and it was written by a political prisoner who had organized pro-democracy protests in southern China. Um, And this unfortunately is not the last SOS letter of this kind um, to be found in an American or Western product. Um, And many forced laborers, actually a growing number of forced laborers continue to be detained in China. Many of them are political dissidents, religious dissidents, ethnic minorities, and um, various petty criminals who didn't actually commit any kind of real or violent crime. Um, These are the people that end up stuck in these extra legal detention centers, um, a lot of times making our cheap goods.
1: Well, it certainly has been in the news a lot in uh, recent years. So for background, help us understand a little bit, uh, what exactly is a Chinese labor camp and what purpose do they serve? Who runs them? Uh, How pervasive are they?
2: These are very pervasive uh, facilities. Um, Some of them are actual prisons where the detainees have been sentenced um, in a court, Um, although China has a 99.9% prosecution rate. So that doesn't really say a whole lot um, if they've received an actual sentence. Um, But what is more troubling is that many of these detention centers are extra legal. So the detainees there um, have not gone to trial, they have not, they do not have access to a lawyer, and they are really held there indefinitely, um, a lot of times doing very grueling manufacturing work for 15 to 20 hours a day.
1: Mm. And it sounds like uh, from the, the proof of these, the evidence of these letters that we're receiving in the U.S., since you said since the 90s, at least, that we know about, uh, it sounds like they may not be um, Able to connect connect with their families or any type of law uh, legal aid or anything like that and so that's why they are, are reaching out to us through these letters and other means uh, similar to that.
2: Yes, exactly it's very hard for them to get any kind of legal help once you get stuck in one of these Labor camps. Um, the person in my book that I focus on, he actually was able to find a human rights lawyer who would take this on. Um, mm. Unfortunately, um, the result uh, was that this lawyer ended up uh, in prison himself and mm. um, not just for standing up for this particular political prisoner, but his various human rights works in China. Um, and he continues uh, to be under house arrest today. Mm -hmm. So so the risks that lawyers face in China, the personal risk, the the risks for their families is is quite high, and there's not many lawyers willing to stand up uh, for the millions of people who are arbitrarily detained in these camps.
1: Mm -hmm. And the types of examples that you hear about in the news of others who are detained for other uh, types of freedoms that they're fighting for just seems to be pervasive across the the country so it's interesting you said that this note was found in uh, 2012 which we're going to talk about in a few minutes but it uh, was that human rights attorney uh, has he been on house arrest since that time
2: he was imprisoned um, and released a few years ago, um, but mm-hmm. since his release, he has remained under house arrest, and his daughter and wife have escaped to the U.S. I believe they're in California. Um, his name is Jiang Tongyong, but I, I I don't believe he's been released from house arrest in China. Mm, mm, mm. Yep.
1: Okay, so uh, our re-education through labor camps a recent phenomenon? It sounds like uh, there was a note that was found in the 90s that you mentioned. Uh, does it have a, a history beyond that? Does it have other examples in other countries?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, forced labor, um, especially Corvée labor, it, it's, it's really not a new phenomenon. It existed many parts of the world, it existed in ancient China, you know, the Great Wall, all of that was built on the backs of corvee labor. Um, but it was really with the rise of the Chinese Communist Party in 1949, and actually even earlier than that, as, as the party was beginning to gain momentum and take control parts of China, you started to see these early uh, camps really where the, detainees were held for a political purpose. They were were political enemies um, and they were used for their labor. And these earliest uh, political labor camps in China were actually based off of Soviet gulags. So the conditions are quite horrific. Torture is prevalent. Uh, Sexual violence, unfortunately, is very prevalent in the women's camps. And um, unfortunately, since the 1930s, they have Expanded at a rapid rate.
1: Mm, mm. Well, I, uh, you mentioned women, uh, so. I guess the first part of my next question is how many people are in labor camps do, today? Do we have really an accurate uh, estimate of that? And then w- what are their uh, crimes that they're being put into these camps for? And uh, as you mentioned women, let's talk a little bit more about that because I think it's an incredibly important point to understand uh, what are the uh, experiences of women in these camps, if you can talk more about that. And, and, and are they also, uh, to what extent are they targets for forced labor?
2: That's a great question. Um, You know, it's hard to say an exact figure of how many people are actually detained in these camps because the Chinese government doesn't release this data. Um, But what we do know is that in the Uyghur camps alone, the Uyghurs are ethnic minority that are, uh, a lot of them are being detained in China in the Xinjiang region. Um, Just in the Uyghur camps alone, anywhere between 1.5 to 3 million people are, are detained. Um, and that's just one demographic. There's many different types of camps holding other demographics throughout China. Um, so so it's the numbers in the millions, we could safely say that. Um, as for what the women specifically face, um, it's if you talk to any female forced labor survivor in China, they can attest to the sexual violence, again, that the guards, uh, they face from the guards, um, really brutal, brutal violence. Uh, um, gang rape is pretty common. Um, getting shocked by electric batons as they're experiencing sexual violence is common. Um, it's, it's, it's very, I, I don't wanna get too graphic here and disturb the audience, but, um, but we are learning that with the rise of the Uyghur camps, the sexual violence seems to be, even worse because you're seeing the women actually getting sold to men outside of the camps who will come um, and have their way with them. And so it's a huge issue. Um, I think there really needs to be more consumers. Oh, it needs to be part of the our larger social consciousness to be aware that the people that actually make these products, um, what their lives, what they're actually facing in these camps.
1: Well, your book does exactly light uh, that, shedding light on the topic and, and helping people become aware, even more than, than they were, uh, become aware of this uh, horrific practice. Uh, you mentioned millions of people in, uh, in uh, camps and even with the, the large uh, population that China has around 1.4 billion, I think it is uh, approximately these days, Uh, that's still an astonishing amount for any country uh, of any size. So I want to transition a little bit to uh, really the the central part or the beginning point of your book and that's Sun Yi and uh, that's uh, you introduced us to him earlier in the book and he spent years in the Masanjia labor camp. Who was Sun and and why is his story uh, significant?
2: Yes, Yi was a religious dissident. Um, He uh, I wanted to focus on his story because he was actually manufacturing uh, decorative gravestones at Masanjia labor camp, uh, Masanjia re reeducation through labor camp. Um, And it's a camp where there were actual graves that the detainees were buried. And if they passed away uh, after being tortured or malnourished um, Mm -hmm. under these very terrible conditions. Mm -hmm. and So essentially you have American Halloween decorations being manufactured at actual gravesite. And I I just thought that was a powerful way to to show the connection between the horrors on that side of the world. to, to make that direct connection to us as consumers.
1: Yeah, I mean the connection but the incongruency. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU
0: in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at edu.
1: Of the purposes of those graves and uh, what a way to illuminate uh, the topic. Uh, so, He was a follower of the spiritual movement called Falun Gong. And uh, why has this movement uh, Falun Gong been a target? And what makes them threatening to uh, the communist party or problematic?
2: The Falun Gong group does have a unique ability to organize large protests and other types of um, underground dissident activities and networks in China that is very difficult and dangerous to organize and not a whole lot of groups are willing to do it. Um, so the fact that um, this group got as popular as it did in the 90s, um, and I believe around 70 million had joined and by the time that it was banned in the 90s, That was a major threat to an authoritarian regime that, up until that moment, had been able to control protests, you know, pretty effectively. I mean, after the Tiananmen Square protests, um, you really didn't really see any other groups on mainland China doing that kind of organizing. Um, you're seeing that in Hong Kong right now, though they don't consider themselves part of mainland China. They have a very different culture and mentality there. But it, it is very um, rare to see groups in mainland China actually take on that kind of bold, organized resistance. Um, and that's what, that what Falun Gong does in China. And that's uh, the main reason why um, all of anyone who decides to join this initiative um, ends up in essentially labor camps.
1: Yeah, I know uh, it's widely known that that China has such a restrictive clamp down on uh, protests and anything of that sort. I mean, I I think still to this day that they won't address or mention the uh, details and what happened at Tiananmen Square that that year. So uh, I could see in their eyes why this would be such a a problem. Uh, So you mentioned that, that this message was found in in Halloween decorations. A woman named Julia finds them uh, at her house when she gets the package. She lives in Portland, Oregon. And uh, really how ubiquitous in the United States are Chinese goods made by forced uh, labor. I mean, as we said in the beginning of the program, it's incredibly difficult to find so many of the goods that we have in our country that are not made by China. So how uh, common are they made in the labor camps and and how do we know that?
2: It is very common. I mean, right now we're seeing evidence that everything from the raw materials to solar panels uh, to the human hair extensions that's gotten popular these days, Um, A lot of that is made in forced labor facilities. Um, It's so ubiquitous that it is really difficult to tell which product or which company isn't using forced labor. Um, During my research for this book, I learned that the way that most corporations audit their Chinese suppliers is extremely flawed. Um, It's virtually impossible for them to detect um, secret or hidden subcontracting to a forced labor facility, um, and it's essentially by design. Um, most of these audits are designed more to protect the corporation um, in, in light of a scandal than to actually protect the workers and actually um, look into workers' rights in any kind of fundamental way. Um, so there's my ch- a chapter in my book about that, about the flaws in our auditing systems and, um, things that can, simple things that can be improved uh, to reduce the number of forced labor goods that are coming into the US. Uh, There's a
1: question uh, that comes from Ray Termini, one of our uh, really wonderful members. He asks, uh, is there a relationship between legitimate manufacturing in China and these forced labor camps? There are
2: a lot of times I wouldn't say all legitimate manufacturers have a relationship with labor camps. There's definitely good ones out there, Um, but a lot of times they do have a relationship and it's very hard for a company to tell based on the current ways that they're inspecting their factories. Um, When I went to China to do research for my book in early 2019, I visited the camps. I followed the trucks that left these camps and I followed them to the official suppliers, the legitimate suppliers, so-called, that um, our companies are sourcing from. They went to all kinds of exporters um, from everything from um, a pet products manufacturer to a bike brakes manufacturer, to a pharmaceutical, to even an official Apple supplier. The actual address when I googled it showed up as an official Apple supplier list. Um, so, you know, it's, there's definitely a connection between these camps and um, exporters that work with our companies.
1: So truly these are products that are touching all of our lives in one way or another. You uh, mentioned bicycle supplies just now, Apple supplies. Uh, You mentioned hair extensions a few uh, minutes ago uh, and a couple of other things. There's a question from uh, Robert Potter that you've addressed uh, mainly with what's being made in the camps, but are there other supplies that you can think of that uh, we're using uh,
2: that they're making in those camps? It's hard to say what isn't made in these camps. Usually the more high-tech things, they'll have more specialized factories um, that have been specifically tooled for um, that product and need certain kind of skilled workers to to make it. Usually that won't actually be manufactured in a camp, um, but they could have the final packaging or something like that done at a camp. So you you could still see a connection between uh, those facilities Um, But a lot of times the things that are made in the actual camp are, you know, garments, fast fashion is a big, big culprit, Um, um, little parts that require tedious assembling that you can kind of just drop off the camp and have them do it and pick and pick it back up a few hours later. Um, It's, it's really hard to say I don't, I I think basically every industry is touched by forced labor at this point. Um, It's hard I don't think I could say that there's even a specific product that isn't manufactured or hasn't touched a labor camp at any point of the, the supply chain.
1: Mm. You mentioned fast fashion. I've been reading more and more about that in recent years, uh, but it's it's a huge problem because fast, fast fashion uh, uh, is something that is so appealing to so many of us Americans because it is cheap, clothing that you can buy that may not last. In fact, it probably won't last. It's going to uh, tear apart or get worn in or lose a button or many buttons. And uh, and that's really the intent of it. And so it's not going to last you long. It's going to be in style for a very set restrictive time period. And then you move on to the next cheap good. And so uh, I think it's important for people to know that that's, that's where these, these uh, clothing pieces are coming from. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that
2: yes um and and the reason why fast fashion is such a big problem is because well when i was doing research for my book i found out that a lot of times the factory owners that legitimate factories they they cannot realistically make the product for that short of a deadline that our companies are giving them mm. um, for example um I don't have evidence that Fashion Nova specifically is using forced labor, but I find it troubling how fast that they can produce products. So you have fast fashion, and then now you have ultra-fast fashion. The fact that they're only online, they are able to reduce the time between design, production, distribution even more than before. Um, The CEO of Fashion Nova has famously bragged to the New York Times that they can turn something from a design into an actual clothing um, in less than 24 hours. Less wow. than 24 hours. I mean, what, what happened to, to, wow. to make that possible? Um, when factories don't have enough time to make a product, they have to outsource work to some pretty shady places like um, very unethical factories or um, prison camps where detainees can stay up 20 hours a day to manufacture the goods. To help meet our production deadlines, because mm-hmm. if the official supplier doesn't meet our deadline, then they'll be charged a huge fine by the company. A lot of the times, mm-hmm. so so large of a fine that they won't actually even make a product, make a profit for manufacturing that good. Um, uh, they'll probably have to to maintain a good relationship with um, our companies. They might have they might have to fly that product um, overseas instead of shipping it to get it there faster. Um, and flying is extremely expensive for the factory. So, so there's a lot of factors um, that go into play into, in terms of why that factory owner ultimately makes that decision to outsource work to a forced labor facility. And a lot of times, though, that decision um, is made based on factors that have everything to do with us.
1: Yep. Uh, One last statement about that uh, is that uh, I can imagine that some companies, if they missed these deadlines, would just stop working uh, with those uh, forced labor camps, perhaps. And then, uh, you know, there's not, there's even less money to go around on that side. I'll also say that I read an article some years ago, um, three or four years ago, about major name brands tossing unused unpurchased bags of clothing in dumpsters uh, because it hadn't been sold and it was on to the next cycle of fast fashion. Uh, fast fashion. So uh, it really is uh, an interesting, well, problem uh, that we have. But I wanna move on uh, to a powerful statement that you had in your book about Sun Yi and it says he was a caged animal, but in his mind, he was free. Can you say more about that?
2: He was very much like a caged animal in that camp. He was there for two and a half years, but it felt like decades to him because every day they did the same repetitive tasks. They didn't have access to see their family or friends, most of them, if they're political detainees, like, like Sunni, um, they, he sometimes even forgot that he was alive in a sense
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: because there were just people dying all around him and he just hadn't been a part of the outside world in so long. Um, but he, against the odds, he held on to his spirituality. And I think that was what made him feel like he was still free in his mind. And that was what got him through, Mm -hmm. um, through all the torture and really, um, really devastating, debilitating experiences there.
1: Mm. Well, let's broaden this uh, topic a little bit. And I see through, uh, we have a lot of questions, by the way, but I see through the questions that People are uh, interested in other groups uh, uh, within China, uh, and uh, particularly the Uyghurs, and that's something that I wanted to talk about as well so that uh, dovetails, but in any case, uh, let's talk about the Uyghurs. They're a Muslim minority uh, living within China's Xinjiang province. Uh, We know from uh, firsthand stories, satellite imagery, uh, and other sources that millions, and as you mentioned uh, a little while ago, that millions of people have been detained in China in forced uh, uh, labor camps. So uh, why the Uyghurs? And uh, from Paul Pass, he is uh, the executive director of the Japan America Society of DFW here he, uh, he asked, uh, like I said, why the Uyghurs and why are they disproportionately? And in comparison to other minorities, such as Manchu or Miao?
2: That's a great question. Um, I can tell a personal story. I'm actually part Uyghur um, and uh, part Chinese. My, or part Han Chinese. My, my grandmother was half Uyghur. She was born and raised in Xinjiang or what the Uyghurs like to call East Turkestan. Um, because Xinjiang is what the Chinese government calls their new frontier. That's what it translates as. Um, And the why they're targeted. Um, Well, really for decades, there's been um, a concerted effort to force the Uyghurs to assimilate and identify as Han Chinese to kind of create this unified single state race in China um, and have that be Han dominated. Um, and the reason for that is they don't want the Chinese government doesn't want any kind of um, potential problems uh, for the economic develop economic investments they've made in the Xinjiang region. Um, you know, it, it was previously the trade route for the for the Silk Road. That region in northwestern China is of huge um, trade and strategic importance to China. Um, it connects China to the Middle East. It connects China to Europe. It connects China to West Asia. Um, the, a lot of important trade routes go through there today. Um, um, it's a key part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Which, um, for those of you who are not familiar, that's China's. A trillion dollar economic development strategy. Um, and it's almost too big to fail. Um, so um, they're extremely worried that past um, treatments of Uyghurs might have um, created some discontent in that region. They're afraid of any kind of protests or. Um, movement for um, independence, things like that, um, that might destabilize the economic investments they've made in that region. So that's why this kind of large scale ban, a large scale imprisonment of Uyghurs um, began. You can see that um, the years where it began, um, 2016, 2018, it really aligned with major investments that China made in that region for the Belt and Road Initiative. uh, you know, China says it's because they're afraid of terrorism. This is a counterterrorism um, initiative because the Uyghurs are mostly Muslims. Um, but even the U.S. government's uh, counterterrorism experts say um, this is not a very good counterterrorism strategy because you're targeting every single person in Xinjiang. The scope is simply too broad. Um, you need to have a more targeted approach if it's actual Counterterrorism um, policy, um, so you know it. It really doesn't hold up because the Chinese government will, they will say opposing things. They'll sometimes say this is counterterrorism. They'll also sometimes say that this is a vocational training initiative. Um, these these are not camps. They're just vocational training centers to help um, backwards Turkic people uh, learn. Um, Uh, skills that can get the manufacturing work, Um, but what you're seeing with a lot of the people detained in these factories are professors, they're even celebrities, um, they're really like a lot of leaders in the community. It's a very targeted approach to um, capture people who have influence, um, people who are quite prominent and do not need manufacturing training.
1: We are speaking with Amelia Pang on her new book, Made in China, A Prisoner, and SOS Letter, and the Hitting Cost of America's Cheap Goods. Uh, uh, Like we mentioned in the beginning, if you have a question, please do put it in the Q&A box. And Amelia, we are having several questions come through here. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, from Lange uh, Navarro, How do you get these photos? So if we're monitoring the situation in China and we uh, know that these labor camps are going on, how are we uh, getting these pictures and videos of the camps if the internet is so restricted? Uh, Obviously the satellite is one thing, but uh, I know on the ground, uh, photos and videos are another. So how is that happening?
2: Um, there has been a small number of journalists who have managed to go to Xinjiang um, and um, get some kind of uh, recording done. Vice actually did a terrific documentary on this. Um, they had one of their reporters post the tourists and secretly film um, mm. in the camps. I encourage everyone to watch it. It's very chilling. They were able to capture footage of people being sent to the camps in real time. Um as for it is getting harder and harder to document, though, with China's crackdown on foreign journalists, um, you're seeing a lot of uh, journalists with major institutions like the BBC getting kicked out um, for reporting on what's happening to the Uyghurs and forced labor facilities. So, um, no, it, it is very troubling. But, but like you said, the, the satellite images can still reveal a lot. We're still able to get quite a lot of documentation about the growth of the camps. Um, Another reason why we're able to get this documentation is because the Chinese government um, tries to actually openly promote these camps as vocational training centers. Um, They're also called the Uyghur labor transfer program where they're moving Uyghurs outside of Xinjiang into various forced labor factories um, throughout China and through other parts of Xinjiang as well. Um, And you can look up Uyghur labor transfer program in Chinese and see um, a lot of footage um, by Chinese domestic media uh, promoting uh, this particular policy and you can see which factories are participating and then you can track from there um, which factories there which companies those factories are associated with.
0: Mm.
1: So on the note of uh, monitoring and uh, uh, things like that in China we're getting some questions about how did you go undetected if you were in areas that you may not um, were supposed to be in, uh, and how was your uh, experience there
2: did you feel like you were in danger when you were in China. Um, I was worried, but I actually went um, undetected um, and didn't get arrested at any point. uh, So I actually got a lot uh, done. Um, I you know, there's been a lot of coverage of Xinjiang and the Uyghur camps, and that's why, and it's good, um, but also that's why the uh, camps in those regions are very, very tightly monitored. Um, It's very hard for journalists to actually visit there. I was not able to go to Xinjiang myself for that reason. Um, But the camps outside of Xinjiang, Um, there's so many camps outside of Xinjiang with with, with different names. They're not called vocational training centers, but they're called pretrial detention centers or drug detox centers or uh, legal education centers. There's so many innocuous names, but these facilities are all extra legal detention centers where forced labor occurs at a pretty large scale. Um, And in these facilities that don't necessarily um, detain Uyghur majority populations they're not as closely guarded and so you actually are able to visit those on site without drawing much attention if you're not on a journalism visa um, which which is what I what I did I went on a tourism visa so I wouldn't get tracked Mm -hmm. Um, because if you go on a journalism visa the moment you arrive um, at the in Beijing they're or wherever the the police are gonna have a talk with you to let you know that they're watching you and they're gonna you're gonna start getting followed from that moment, um, but I I didn't have that issue because I went as a tourist and tried to stick to camps that were near um, tourist sites so it didn't look so odd that I was there, um, so I went to bigger cities like like Shanghai and you know southern China and Beijing and and um you know I was actually surprised at how easy it was to talk to the guards at the camps and to actually go Mm. there and follow the trucks and confirm these details um because I think the guards there are very used to working with other manufacturers and even corporations themselves um they're they're used to kind of talking to people and selling the goods that they have made that are made inside. It's not something they're uncomfortable or they're hiding, which is the chilling part. Um, If you go there and just say that, which I just went there and I said that I was from a a company that wanted to, a foreign company that wanted to source products from them. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. They tell you what they make inside. They offer to give you a tour. you know, they they really review quite a lot of details. And even though a lot of these facilities are called drug detox centers or pre-trial detention centers or um, vocational training centers or whatever they, you know, a lot of times the guards themselves will describe the place as a prison when you talk to them about um, this facility and what's made inside. Um, And and so it it was very telling to get these details. And um, I was, actually surprised at how easy it was to just hang out at the camps and follow the trucks that left to see which manufacturers they worked with, um, which leads me to conclude that, um, you know, if I as individual, individual journalists can do this, then um, multimillion-dollar corporations can definitely have the resources to find out more than what I was able to um, if they wanted to look or if their audits were designed to look for things like this.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah, very telling indeed. Uh, We uh, had a question, how do these, uh, this is from Briarwood uh, Crime Watch, uh, how do these camps compare to the re-education camps that existed in the 1960s and 70s?
2: Um, Yes, they're very very similar. They they have different names. The names have evolved over the years. For a while, the re-education through labor camps were one of the main detention centers throughout China, Um, an extra legal detention center that were detainees, um, a lot of activists were sent. Um, uh, Since there was some international criticism for having re-education through labor camps, uh, China claimed they closed all of them. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Human Rights Watch did a great investigation, which found that uh, pretty much most of the re education through labor camps have reopened as drug detox centers. Um, they, they, they're they still, when I went to visit former re education through labor camps, that was what I saw as well. There's still barbed wires, there's still guards. Um, it looked very much like a prison camp, um, but it just had the name drug detox center um, uh, on the building instead. Uh, but no, very much detainees are still detained. there doing forced labor and um, they're, they, they, even for those who are drug addicts, they, they don't receive any kind of um, mental health help or any kind of wellness help to get them, help them get better. Uh, it, it is so very much a forced labor facility.
1: From Nikki McQuestion, we uh, have read through the years, uh, or at least I've seen through the years, there are major brands that I uh, mentioned a little while ago that have come out uh, in, against this issue uh, and have questioned China's uh, practices regarding cheap or fa- uh, and or forced labor. And so she asks uh, about uh, the company H&M, that's a men's and women's clothing store. Uh, one could say more towards the fast, faction, uh, fat, fast faction, fashion, fast uh, fashion spectrum of things. But uh, what are uh, what have been the results of when
2: companies do that? Yes, H and M is a great company to bring up for this discussion. Um, not because they're great, but because uh, they are absolutely um, a culprit in, in this. Uh, actually, there's a a British prisoner, former prisoner named Peter Humphrey, who was um, imprisoned in a prison camp himself, that and he while he was there he saw H uh, H&M products being manufactured there. Um, he saw the HM label and you know actually wrote a great op-ed about his experience in the Financial Times after he got out. Um, and I. And uh, so he was in prison in Qingpu prison um, in Shanghai, and I tried to visit that prison. And I saw that um, there was actually an HM factory within a 10 minute drive from that prison. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's hard to say if h H&M, if, if there was actually that factory outsourcing work to a prison camp, um, but it just comes to show a lot of times these these prison camps are everywhere and um, it's, you know, it is very, very easy for them to subcontract work to each other if nobody is checking out who the subcontractors are.
1: Mm. Let's transition and uh, begin talking about uh, international response, U.S. response, U.S. government response. Uh, Just last week, the Washington Post editorial board called on Western companies to boycott the uh, uh, 2022 Olympics in Beijing over the treatment of Uyghurs, the rollback of freedoms in Hong Kong, the religious persecution of Christians, Tibetan Buddhists, Falun Gong practitioners, and its overall record of human rights uh, abuses. There's also a rising cor- uh, chorus calling on the US and other countries to boycott the games entirely. So how effective do you think these boycotts could be? And are these calls uh, likely to gain traction uh, through time uh, as we become more and more polarized as a country, there's more and more boycotts being called for. And really how effective are these boycotts, if they're not widespread enough, are they really uh, uh, creating an impact at that that corporate company? But uh, what are your thoughts on this?
2: I think boycotts hold the potential to be very effective. Um, the boycott against Nike in the 90s actually led to pretty dramatic changes in the fashion industry and beyond, uh, that's when they began doing audits in the first place. Um, they didn't even do audits at all before, um, or let alone release that information to the public. Um, so boycotts can be very effective. There's historical precedents for it. Um, but unfortunately at the scale that they're happening right now, I don't think it, it will be very effective. Um, I don't think there's really, you're not seeing enough companies pull out of um, advertisements for the Beijing Olympics. So it's, it doesn't seem to have a huge financial hit for Beijing at the moment. Um, but as for other international responses, you are seeing it stepping up slowly. Um, the US, the UK, the European Union and Canada all recently announced sanctions um, against Chinese officials who are involved in human rights abuses against the Uyghurs. Um, So that was really one of the first coordinated Western efforts you saw to hold China accountable for these camps. Um, The Biden administration played a role in that, and hopefully we'll see them continue to keep up that pace.
1: Well, speaking of uh, financial uh, impact and uh, dollar amounts, we have a uh, question from one of our board members, Peter Lowe. He asks, uh, do we have estimates of the dollar value on the goods being produced as a result of these
2: labor camps? It is hard. It's really hard to say. I, I, I'm really lucky to give you an estimate because it's, again, we're not getting any kind of Reliable data on this—we're kind of just basing this off of groups and journalists that have made estimates over the years. Um, but early on, the Chinese government has actually um, released some estimates that it's it, um, quite a significant portion of of, of the exports. Um, it's just—it um, is—it's just very hard to untangle the part that was manufactured in a camp versus a part that was manufactured in a legitimate factory. How much of it do you count um, as 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 forced labor? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You write that one particularly powerful catalyst of the proliferation of Lao Gai camps was the US decision to establish formal diplomatic relations with the Chinese Communist Party. We have a new administration in place and they have already begun high level talks with uh, the Chinese uh, government. So how would you advise President Biden to address human rights and are the most effective policies likely to involve financial pushback as you have written? And we do have uh, several people who are asking questions about what our government can do, how we can mitigate and address this topic.
2: I would strongly encourage um, the Biden administration to get the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act passed. Um, What that act would do is it would ban all goods from the Xinjiang region because the level of forced labor in that region is so high, you cannot um, verify something wasn't manufactured by forced laborers um, that if it came from that region. Um, that bill is currently in sitting in the House and the Senate, Um, it was, it previously passed um, unanimously, I believe in the House last year, and and in the last administration, but it just got stalled and stalled and stalled due to corporate lobbying efforts uh, to get that legislation watered down or removed entirely. Um, so they just reintroduced the bill recently and we'll we'll see what happens there. But but that's really that's one legislation that could be really effective because Xinjiang is just a region with such economic importance to China. <clears throat> if a huge huge trading partner like the US were to ban all goods from Xinjiang, it would really quite uh, it would be a big blow to China financially. Um, Um, And to the point where uh, it would be hard for them to come back from so 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 that would be huge leverage for us in terms of pushing China to um, address uh, the human rights issue in these camps.
1: Uh, speaking of the international response, we have one of our staff members, Kirsten, ask uh, that uh, about wanting to know comparative uh, conditions in other countries like Vietnam. And uh, do you feel that uh, our country will ever shift away from China uh, in favor of other rising economic powers in the region?
2: I think so. I mean, already you're seeing some companies pull out of China because China is no longer the cheapest place to get goods. You know, there's a lot of African countries that are um, developing economies um, offer even cheaper uh, labor. Um, You're seeing a lot of companies build factories in in Myanmar now um, uh, and even Mexico. You know, it's it's really... um, Globalization 2.0, as some would call it. um, You know, just the move out of China. China, in fact, is even facilitating that. They're trying to focus on uh, high-tech manufacturing at the moment and in the future be known less for the cheap stuff and more for the um, high-tech things like AI-enabled technologies. um, You know, um, a lot of the medical devices that they want to do, like, uh, those types of manufacturing work, but um, those could also be partially manufactured in a labor camp. It doesn't really solve the issue to um, move just one industry, like the fashion industry, for example, outside of, out of China. Mm. Uh,
1: yeah, it's, it's uh, very true. It's a good point. Uh, let's talk about the corporate response uh, in the book, you note a 2014 study which found that companies on the S&P 500 index with a sustainability mission outperform businesses without one. So, can you talk a little bit more about that, and to what extent are matters of human rights part of sustainability missions today uh, for companies, and versus say uh, simply treating labor uh, standard as part of compliance?
2: Right, That's a great question. Um, unfortunately, the word sustainability is often a marketing buzzword for a lot of these companies. They make companies a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of consumers that are willing to pay higher prices for um, a label that seems to suggest this product was ethically produced um, or produced with environmental sustainability in mind. Um, but Rarely do any of these companies actually have any kind of policies in place in place that could um, detect the forced labor issue. Um, You're you're not seeing a whole lot of companies agreeing to pull out of Xinjiang, even though they may claim to be sustainable, because Xinjiang is one region that manufactures a lot of different types of goods, Um, everything from cotton to tomatoes to just human hair extensions and the the raw materials with solar panels. Um, The U.S. government did make a region-wide ban of tomato and cotton products from Xinjiang, but those are by far not the only products that are made there and you really need to, I I think their solution will have to be some kind of a coordinated government efforts across multiple governments to address The forced labor issue, Um, we we cannot really rely on companies to update their sustainability pages and and start to take this issue seriously.
1: So we don't have too much time left and I want to uh, end on uh, something that uh, I feel is uh, most important in this uh, specific picture. And that is what can we do as consumers to be more aware of the issues? How do we uh, not uh, partake in this? And uh, do you think we're um, willing to pay more or change our uh, spending habits in order to reduce uh, the, the pulse for cheap goods? So what are your thoughts on that? What can we do? How can we help fix
2: this? I think the next time you go shopping online at your favorite brand's website, you know, just be aware that you are their target market and what you find important, the brands will pay attention to. So just take a moment and look at their sustainability page and see what it says or see how little it reveals a lot of the times. Um, My book Made in China is about educating consumers what what those sustainability pages should be saying and what what are red flags when when they're not saying those things. Um, And one of the things the sustainability pages should start all saying is that they're willing to pull out of Xinjiang. They're not sourcing any goods from Xinjiang because that is a region with a high level of forced labor. Um, So if there's no mention of Xinjiang um, on that page or corporate social responsibility page, then that's a red flag. Um, and another thing that we should start asking our companies to reveal on, um, in their, to look for in their audits and to reveal on their pages is, is, is just how fast the product was made. Um, did the factory realistically have enough time to make the product in-house um, at a sustainable factory or did, um, was the company just really trying to maximize, um, Um, as much as they can off of the latest trends. Um, We we really need to start knowing that kind of information. We need to know how much the company actually offer their factories to make the products? Um, Was that price realistically high enough to pay the wages of the local workers in the region? Or did the Chinese supplier kind of have no choice but to outsource work to really shady places like labor camps where detainees uh, do manufacturing work uh, without payment? Um, These are really the kind of details that we need to start asking our companies to reveal. And until those details are revealed, we cannot guarantee any of these products are not made by uh, forced labor.
1: I have a feeling that there is not going to be a lot of information on a lot of these websites as we start to look into this. Uh, Well, I'm a big believer that it's not all or nothing. I think that to the extent that all of us can make an effort uh, in this uh, area every bit helps and uh, hopefully slowly through time that will gain momentum and and really create uh, impact and change on this critical, issue. Amelia, I can't tell you how uh, appreciative we are that you are joining us, and uh, obviously you heard uh, so many questions from our audience. This is a topic of concern and interest for so many of us, and we are just thrilled to have you here, so thank you for joining us. Thanks for your flexibility. I'm sorry you had to uh, get stuck with me, but uh, we really appreciate your time.
2: You did a great job. Thank you so much um, for having me. Thank you so much to World Affairs Council. And um, and thank you so much to Aterabang Books uh, for supporting uh, this my work. I uh, really encourage everyone to buy something from Aterabang Books, even if it's not my book. Um, you know, books were such an important part of our community right now. Um, thanks again, everyone. You've been a great audience.
0: Absolutely. Well, Liz, Amelia, thank you for a fascinating discussion. It's absolutely an important issue. And I know that I have learned things that will make me a more conscious consumer moving forward. So thank you for that. Once again, like Amelia mentioned, you can pick up a copy of her book, Made in China, a prisoner and SOS letter and the hidden cost of America's cheap goods at interabangbooks.com. Remember to use the code DFWworld for 10% off your online purchase. Of course, you can catch up on all of our past virtual programs on the council's YouTube channel, DFW World. And if you're not a member of the council yet, please join us. We would love to see you more. And I know that Liz and the entire council staff look forward to connecting with you in person when it is safe to do so. Visit dfwworld.org for more information on our membership options. Once again, thank you all for joining us. Have a great night.